Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I know that um, most of you are familiar with uh, Founders Baptist Church down in Spring, a very like-minded church, a very like-minded pastor, a dear friend of mine, Richard Caldwell. And uh, every year they have a conference uh, in January uh, called the Truth and Love Conference. And uh, it's happening this coming weekend. And uh, the theme uh, of this year's conference is discernment and the importance of uh, discernment in the life of uh, every Christian. And uh, I know that some of you already registered for that uh, and are planning to attend that, uh, that, uh, that weekend, Friday night, Saturday, and hopefully you won't stay on Sunday. You'll be, you'll be back here, but uh, that's between you and the Lord, okay? Um, but uh, anyway, you're registered, and, and, and again, as some of you are maybe just hearing about it for the first time, uh, just know that you won't be able to go because they've already got some 900 people signed up and 200 people on a waiting list or something. So, uh, But you can uh, watch live stream, and uh, I think it'll be broadcast all weekend, and so I'm sure if you go to Founders' website, you could get um, uh, the information to, to link up with that this weekend. But uh, Richard was very gracious to invite me to be a part of the, the speaking team, uh, along with guys like John MacArthur and uh, Paul Washer and uh, Steve Lawson. And uh, I feel like I'm the bat boy showing up. Uh, but uh, anyway, I've been thinking about the, the passage that uh, I've chosen to, to preach next, next uh, Saturday is when my slot is. And uh, I just thought it would be uh, good for us to be thinking about it together as a church, um, since we are the expository listening church, right? And so we need to be regularly reminded uh, of the principles in God's Word about being a discerning listener. And I think that is probably one of the biggest challenges, if not the greatest challenge of being a, a good listener of God's Word is you have to develop the habit of discernment. And so, what does that look like practically? Well, we have a, a text here before us, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 3 through 11, and I think we'll find here uh, some help when it comes to uh, developing a, a, a discerning ear or um, becoming a discerning listener. Read along with me in your Bibles, First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Father, we're grateful for 
the Apostle Paul and how you raised him up to speak truth, especially in a day and age where there was false teachers everywhere. And I pray that as we consider his words to Timothy here, that you would uh, help us to be uh, receptive to your word and responsive as well, Lord, that we wouldn't let this uh, sermon just go in one ear and out the other, but we would see this as truth for the road and uh, a help, uh, especially in this very vital area of uh, developing a discerning ear. And so help us today, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, since the beginning of time, Satan has sought to shrewdly and subtly twist God's word in order to lead people away from the truth. And it all started in the garden when he uh, deviously disguised himself as a serpent and, and craftily contradicted what God told Adam and Eve. God had clearly commanded them to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if they did, they would what? They would surely die. Well, Satan tempted Eve saying, you'll surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, as you know, Eve listened to Satan's words rather than God's word and plunged the human race into sin. And I think the Apostle Paul gave the, gave the best commentary of Satan's original deception in one of his letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he said this, I'm afraid, lest as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And he went on in that same chapter to, to warn the, the Corinthian believers about false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, Paul said, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And we know Paul's warning was right in line with the warning that Jesus gave toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven fifteen. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are what? You remember? Ravenous wolves. In other words, like their evil master, Satan, the appearance of false teachers is deceiving. They disguise themselves as shepherds, as pastors, as teachers, as leaders in the church. And if a hungry, ferocious wolf jumps over the fence into a flock of sheep, all of them will notice and scatter. But if he walks through the gate, impersonating a shepherd, it'll be hard for the sheep to tell it's a wolf. And the only way the sheep can discern whether or not he is a shepherd or a wolf is by listening to his voice. John chapter 10, love this section that Jesus talks about us as sheep and him as a shepherd, John chapter 10 verse 2, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. 
A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So as one of Christ's sheep, you need to have ears trained to differentiate between the voice of a shepherd and the voice of a stranger. So you know who to flee from and who to follow after. You need to be able to recognize wolves when you not necessarily see them, but when you hear them. Since they're disguised as Christian preachers and teachers and Christian authors and Christian singers and Christian counselors who are being used many times by Satan to deceive and devour Christ's flock. And it's both sad and scary that so many Christians today are naively following the voices of strangers or are being led astray from the truth of God's word. And consequently, their lives are filled with all sorts of turmoil, all sorts of confusion, and they are, as Paul described in Ephesians 4.14, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Paul knew of what he spoke because, or wrote, I should say, because it was no different in his day. Savage wolves had dressed up like shepherds and they slyly slipped into church leadership positions. And in this case, the church in Ephesus, and they were teaching things that were upsetting people and turning them away from the truth. And so in both of his letters to his young disciple Timothy, Paul urged him to silence false teachers by upholding the biblical truths that they were seeking to undermine. And here in the, the opening verses of First Timothy, Paul provided Timothy with a, a grid uh, to, to ferret out uh, false teachers or to filter out false teaching. And this is so helpful because typically false teachers weave in just enough truth into what they're teaching to make themselves sound credible. Isn't that true? But a careful evaluation of their teaching ultimately exposes them as a, as a false teacher. And so what I want us to see this morning in these verses is four ways to discern if a preacher or teacher or author or counselor or singer, you fill in the blank, is biblical or heretical. And whether you should listen to them or not. The first way is to evaluate their source, to evaluate their source. And again, starting in verse 3, Paul says, as I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, he says, remain on at Ephesus. Paul had originally planted this church um, during his second missionary journey. He spent close to three years they're training and equipping the, this body of believers, more time spent here than any other church uh, that he ever uh, was associated with. And while he was under house arrest in Rome, he actually wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. He was later released for a short time and traveled around revisiting some of the key churches that he had planted. And when he arrived in Ephesus, he was grieved to find that the church had been overrun by false teachers, just as he, as he had warned uh, in his final meeting with the elders in Acts chapter 20, that some of them would become false teachers. And so after confronting the men who were teaching heresy, Paul 
traveled on to Macedonia, leaving behind his prized partner in ministry, Timothy, to oversee the reorganization process of the church, help him get, help him, uh, get that church back to the way God had originally uh, intended it to be. And apparently, the demands and the pressures were so overwhelming that Timothy was tempted to pack up and leave. And so Paul was writing to encourage him to hang in there and to complete the daunting task that had been entrusted to him. And notice, what was that task? He says, I urge you to remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So the main reason Paul wanted him to stay was to firmly deal with those who were teaching false doctrine. And he actually describes it as, or calls it, strange doctrines. Heterodiscalia in the Greek, which is an interesting word. It's the opposite of sound doctrine, which we see in verse 10. He uses the word, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. He uses it again in chapter 4, verse 6. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. Uh, And of course, probably the most familiar uh, verse where Paul mentions this sound doctrine word is in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, where he says, for the time will come when they will not endure, what? Sound doctrine, but will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires who will, what? Tickle their ears. So what is this sound doctrine? Well, again, in the Greek, the, the word sound is hugaino. Which means, to, uh, which means correct or healthy or wholesome, that which produces and promotes spiritual growth and health. It's a term from which we get the word hygiene or hygienic. So it's something that's clean, it's something that's safe, it's something that's nourishing to the soul. And then doctrine uh, is just that word didascalia, which is the word for teaching, and it's specifically the truths and principles taught in the Bible. The content of God's word, it's, it's, a, it's biblical instruction. So that's sound doctrine. So strange doctrine is teaching that distorts or mis, mis, misrepresents the truth of God's word. It's error, it's deception, it's lies, it's heresy. And so it appears that Paul coined this, this term to describe the teaching that was different from what had already been taught by Christ and the apostles, including himself. And by that time, when Paul wrote this letter, there, there was a body of truth which was an agreed-upon standard by which all teaching could be tested or judged. The, the apostles' teaching is what is referred to in Acts 2.42, Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the church was the, the teaching of the, of, of the apostles and prophets. Well, today, the standard by which all teaching must be tested and judged is the 66 books of the Bible. That's our standard. And if what a person teaches doesn't agree with or line up with what the Bible teaches, then they should be categorized as a what? False teacher. So simply stated, a false teacher is someone who teaches something that is different than what the Bible teaches. And it's not exactly clear what what the false teachers in the the Ephesian church were teaching here, Paul indicated, however, they were preoccupied with silly side issues and and loved to stir up debates over these meaningless matters. They had this morbid 
fascination with myths and endless genealogies that had no biblical basis whatsoever. Notice verse 4. He says, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. The word myths there refers to fables or, or, or legends or fictional, fanciful stories that were uh, so prolific in, in those days in rabbinical writings. You may be aware of this, that before the Gospels were written, it was easy for heretics to make up stories about the life of Christ. Um, the book of Thomas would be a good example, a non-canonical book. In other words, it never made it into the, the Word of God, but it includes fictitious stories about Jesus' childhood, how he would uh, make sparrows out of clay and send them on their way, or when the, the other little kids were mean to him, he would levitate them. And these stories are in the, the book of Thomas, and they're, they're fanciful uh, old wives' tales. And Paul also mentioned, along with those myths, endless genealogies. And again, the, in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish world, there was a keen interest in, in tracing their family tree back to their patriarchal, patriarchal roots. And as you know, the, the Old Testament contains all sorts of lists of names, and apparently these false teachers added new names and embellished the stories and allegorized the meanings and made them say things that God never meant them to say. And so the source of all these myths and genealogies was, was human imagination rather than divine revelation. Notice it says, which give rise to mere speculation. And I think it's all too common today for preachers to, to do that, and authors, perhaps, and even songwriters, to make confident assertions about certain things without ever giving any biblical basis for where, what they're saying or what they've written. And much of what they say is based on their personal experience or maybe some professional research that they did rather than the Bible. And so when people integrate worldly ideas and personal opinions with Scripture, they unwittingly change the meaning of Scripture. And some, I think, knowingly twist Scripture to make it say what they want it to say to serve their ends. Others simply, I think, well-intended, they just want to go deeper into the Scriptures. They want to go beyond the, the literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. And so they end up saying things that are more than what Scripture says, and it's typically followed by some claim to have discovered something new, something novel, something revolutionary. R.C. Sproul, um, a very discerning man of God, who went home to be the, with the Lord uh, this past year, I guess a couple years ago now, he wrote this. He says, quote, when we talk about understanding the content of a book, he's talking about the Bible here, that was completed 2,000 years ago with the best minds in Western history having poured over the contents of the text, it is highly unlikely that we will come up with a radical new insight that will change the whole dimension of understanding that book. In other words, there's been a whole lot smarter people than us studying the Bible for years. And to think we're going to come upon something in our quiet time some morning that hasn't already been thought about or or, or, or preached on, or written about. Not to say that God won't speak to us personally, individually, if you will, through his word, right? By way of application, something will 
hurt us and it will be revolutionary. Maybe it's been there all along and we've just never seen it that way or applied it to our specific situation. But my point is this. If you hear something you've never heard before, there's a good chance it came from someplace other than the Bible. That is, if you know your Bible. That's a given, right? You know the Word of God well enough that if you hear something you've never heard before, it's probably because it didn't come from the Bible. And I think the best defense against being duped by false teachers is daily Bible study. Uh, Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Paul said to Timothy, he said, in pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ, Jesus, here it is, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. You see, as we expose our mind to Scripture day after day after day, we will grow in our ability to discern truth from error. You've probably heard this, like I have, that the U.S. Treasury Department trains people to catch counterfeiters by having them study genuine bills. So they they just examine these things up and down, backwards and forwards, upside down and right side up, so they become so familiar with, with the real thing that it's very easy for them to spot a fake one. And in the same way, we need to be like the believers in Berea, right? We, we talk about being a good Berean. Why do we say that? Well, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it talks about how the Bereans were diligent students of God's word and they examined everything they heard to make sure it matched up with what the Bible said. And if they were checking up on the Apostle Paul, who was speaking and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't you think we should be checking up on people today who necessarily aren't writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? You should be checking up on me right now. I'll never forget one of our... uh, Man up breakfast. What's your more of a casual atmosphere? Not all the guys bring their Bibles. It's just a little bit different to spin on things on Saturday mornings, having breakfast and having a speaker come in. But one, one time we had uh, a guest come, and I remember seeing him and I wanted to go up and introduce myself and meet him. And uh, I noticed he had a big Bible that he had on the, uh, on, the, the, on the table next to his plate of breakfast food. And I said, hey, man, way to go. I'm really glad you brought your Bible. And he says, he said this, quote, didn't even think about it. He just said, well, I'm not going to take your word for it. And I said, I like you, man. Welcome to Lakeside Bible Church. Uh, And we became instant friends. See, whenever you listen to a a preacher or a teacher or you're reading a, a Christian author, you need to ask yourself questions like this. What is the basis for their teaching? They make a statement. How do they know that? Where did they come up with that? On what are they basing their conviction or their conclusion? That's one of the reasons why I'm I'm so committed to expository preaching where you go uh, verse by verse and and phrase by phrase and word for word. And I hope you're you're getting into the habit of that if I make a statement, I say, "Now, now look back at the text. I want you to see where this statement that I just made came from. But I'm not just kind of pulling it out of left field somewhere or making it up as I go. But, but we're simply trying to walk our way through a verse or a passage and say, hey, this is what it says, and this is what it means, and this is how it applies. 
In other words, the job of a preacher is to get up and, and read the text, explain the text, provide some maybe helpful um, applications uh, or implications from the text, and then shut up and sit down. Don't try to add a bunch of your you know, fancy whatever uh, to the text. It's already sufficient. It has all that we need. And so even though something may sound good, if you can't find any verses to support it or to support what that person is saying, don't accept it. In fact, I'd encourage you to reject it. And so the first way to discern if someone is is teaching truth or error is to evaluate their source. Where are they coming up with this stuff? Secondly, you need to evaluate their product. You need to evaluate their product. Now, as I already mentioned, we don't know for sure what these myths and genealogies were all about. Um, But we do know that whatever they were, they had no spiritual value whatsoever. Again, notice it says they gave rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So they involved futile speculation that only served to stir up arguments and create factions within the church. They caused doubts in people's minds and produced more questions than they actually provided answers. And as a result, instead of establishing the Ephesian believers in their faith, these false teachers were upsetting their faith. And if left unchecked, they would ruin their spiritual lives. And that's what false teachers do. Rather than helping people have a clear understanding of God's word, they, they confuse and they frustrate people by merely speculating thing about things that the Bible isn't clear about or by spiritualizing the scriptures to make them say something God never intended them to say. And I would encourage you, don't have anything to do with these kinds of preachers and teachers and authors who focus on secondary speculative issues that are pointless and are fruitless and they really distract you from the truths that matter most. And whenever it sounds like a a preacher or teacher is getting off track, maybe wandering down a rabbit trail leading nowhere, you need to ask yourself, so what's the point? What does this have to do with helping me grow and mature in my walk with Christ? I remember somebody years ago came into my office and uh, they said, Pastor, I really need to talk to you. And I'm like, sure, let's talk. And so they came and we set up an appointment. They came in and they, they started telling me about these things in the Old Testament that they, had, they, were, they were studying and, and it was all about kind of the genealogies and, and, and all these things and, and, and they were just so excited about it and they, it was, it was like almost like a life or death thing to them and it was so important for them to communicate these things to me and that I needed to understand them and I needed to teach them to the body and I, I was sitting there thinking, what's the point of all this? How, how is this gonna help you or anyone else grow spiritually to become more like Jesus? It was more like, you know, getting all wrapped up in, you know, the, the, the physics or the, you know, the, the chemistry or, 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 you know, some kind of uh, difficult math, you know, analytical geometry and trigonometry and all those kinds of things. And I was like, really, what's the point? Listen, we, we only have so much time, right? 
We don't have time for that frivolous stuff. We need to devote the time and energy that the Lord has given us to studying and meditating on the great truths of the Christian faith that are foundational to, to the building up of our own personal spiritual life and also the spiritual life of the rest of the body of Christ. That's what he meant when he said there, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. You say, what does that mean, the, the, the administration of God? It's, it's simply the work of God. God's purpose and plan for the salvation and sanctification of, of all those who repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And the primary tool that God is using at this time to accomplish his work, to help people come to, to know Christ and to grow in Christ, is the church. And, and futile speculations and fruitless discussions about secondary matters contribute nothing to the building up of the church. In fact, they have the exact opposite effect. They tear it down. Why? Because false teaching distracts and detracts from God's work. And that's why Paul was so adamant that Timothy, Timothy stay there, hang in there in Ephesus and shut these guys up. Shut down the false teachers. Otherwise, the Ephesian church would never experience the, the spiritual growth that sound doctrine produces in people's lives. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, look at verse 5. He says, but the goal of our instruction, unlike the false teachers, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So unlike the false teachers, Paul's teaching had a specific purpose, had a definite goal. Instead of leading nowhere, it led somewhere. It led people to greater godliness. In other words, it helped people become more like God. More Godlike, which is the ultimate aim of, of all biblical instruction, is to help people live godly lives. And a godly life is characterized by a number of things. First of all, love. But the goal of our instruction is love, agape. This is the unconditional, sacrificial commitment to God and other people. And we know that love is a distinguishing. Mark of a Christian. They will know we are Christians by our what? Our love, right? And so the first thing sound doctrine produces in people's lives is greater love for God and greater love for others. Hopefully, if you've been here at Lakeside for months or years, that you can say, you know what? I love God more and I love other people more because of what I've been learning through the instruction of God's word. The second thing, sound doctrine produces a pure heart. Love, it says, from a pure heart. And if you've been going to uh, Chris's equipping uh, class on idols of the heart, you have heard and learned, I'm sure, already, that the heart represents the center of a person or the source of all of its desires, all of our decisions. And so to have a pure heart means that our inner life is not dirtied, it's not stained with sin. And this is a rich theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, for example, Psalm 24, verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a what, you remember? And a pure heart. Matthew 5.8, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
So sound doctrine results in, 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 in a person living a more pure and holy life. I hope you can say, if you've been coming to Lakeside for any length of time, to say, hey, you know what? I'm living a more pure and holy life because of uh, the, the instruction that I've been receiving from God's Word. Well, the third thing that sound doctrine produces. Notice it says, and a good conscience. And we've been learning from our study in Romans, right, that our, our conscience is, is that God-given mental faculty that tells us what is right and what is wrong. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And so when we do something wrong, our conscience accuses us, it convicts us, it makes us feel guilty as it should, or as we should, I should say. And when we do what is right, our conscience defends us and affirms us and, and uh, grants us joy and peace and confidence that, hey, we did the right thing. And so sound doctrine teaches you what is right and wrong so that you can do the right things and maintain a clear conscience. And there's one more thing that Paul mentions here that sound doctrine produces, and that is a sincere faith at the end of verse 5. In other words, a faith that is without hypocrisy. Hypocritos in the Greek language, the word for hypocrite, was used to describe an actor playing a part in a play. And, and it literally, it meant a wearer of a mask, because that's how they did it back then, that, that, a, that a guy would come out with a, with a happy mask and play one role, and then he'd go back off stage and grab another mask. Maybe this time it was a sad mask, and he'd play a sad role. And so Paul's saying here a, a, a faith that doesn't wear a mask. It's not phony. It's not fake. It's not a facade. A lot of people going to church these days, right, showing up at church every Sunday with, it, it, it's, it's all just a facade. But someone who sits under sound doctrine develops true, genuine, saving faith, just like it did in Timothy. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He said, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is in you in you as well. In other words, he was well taught by his mother and grandmother. Well, in contrast to sound doctrine and, and true teaching, false teachers are a bunch of hypocrites. Based on everything we read about false teachers in the pastoral epistles, which, by the way, Paul wrote, John Stott said it well, that when Paul was writing the pastoral epistles, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus, the bane of false teaching was in the back of his mind the whole time. And so that's why there's so much in here about sound doctrine and false doctrine and strange doctrines and false teachers and men who had defected from the faith. They were lovers of themselves. They have dirty and perverted hearts. Their consciences have been seared and defiled. They hold on to an outward form of godliness rather than a genuine internal godliness. You see these characteristics throughout the pastoral epistles. So false teaching will not and cannot produce the godliness that Paul describes here in verse 5. In fact, it produces the exact opposite. Just look for a second with me uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Notice it says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. 
So instead of leading to godliness, it leads to ungodliness. And then and back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul's description of false teachers is profound. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, here are the same thing we're hearing about different doctrines, strange doctrines, sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, notice he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid, morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise, here we go, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So we have a list of ungodly attributes here that result from false teaching, and they, they, they simply describe a complete breakdown in relationships. In other words, the result of false teaching is total chaos and confusion in the church. These are the deeds of the flesh, not, of the, not fruits of the Spirit. And Jesus said we'd be able to know a false teacher by their, what? Fruits. Notice here, if you're there still in 1 Timothy 6, interesting, he, he describes two horrific effects or results of being a false teacher or believing false teaching. Notice he says there in verse 5, deprived, or excuse me, uh, they, they have, they're men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. So they're depraved and they're deprived. Depraved means that they've become corrupted, they, they've become diseased, they've, they've rotted out. Their mental faculties no longer function properly. Uh, Paul mentions a couple guys in 2 Timothy 3, verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But then this deprived of the truth here literally means robbed of the truth. In other words, that the truth was stolen from them. In other words, the implication is that at one time they had the truth. And we know this is um, the age of uh, the deconstruction of well-known Christians, right? We're seeing well-known pastors, well-known authors, well-known spiritual leaders coming out and saying, hey, you know what? I don't really believe this stuff anymore. And uh, I'm, I'm going to just, you know, unhook my anchor and just drift off somewhere. And it's shocking, but it's sad. And what it, what it indicates is that they may have been acquainted with the truth, but they never appropriated the truth. They, they were in contact with the truth, but they never really connected to it. They had been exposed to it, but they never truly embraced it. Hymenaeus and Alexander are an example of that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, men who have gone astray from the truth. In other words, that they had the truth, but they went astray from the truth. You can't go astray from the truth unless you had it to begin with, right? Saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. So in contrast to this, this depraved mind deprived of the truth, sound doctrine produces strong, healthy, spiritually mature people whose lives are characterized by love and purity and integrity and sincerity. 
And this is what people who are regularly exposed to the clear, accurate teaching of God's word look like. They love, they have love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. So the test of of all true teaching is whether it produces these qualities in people's lives. And again, I hope you can sit back and consider your own life and growth and development and say, hey, am I, am I more loving? Am I more pure? Am I more of a person of integrity? Am I more sincere? Is my faith more rock solid than it's ever been as a result of sitting under the sound teaching of God's word? That's what you need to ask yourself. Is, is what you're being taught causing you to love God more, to be more loving towards others, to live a more holy and blameless life and to be a more genuine and sincere Christian. In other words, that your relationship with Christ has become more genuine, more sincere as a result of what you've been taught. Bottom line, does it help you live a more godly life or does it just fill your head with a bunch of information? So the second way to discern if someone is teaching truth or, or error is to evaluate their product. So evaluate their source, evaluate their product. Number three, evaluate their focus. Evaluate their focus. Notice verses six and seven. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So false teachers, they don't care about things like love and a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Their teaching doesn't produce these things. In fact, it doesn't even try to. They're just straying from the truth. They're, they're missing the mark. They're not even aiming at the target. They've turned aside, Paul said. They, they've gone off course. They're headed in the wrong direction like a lost traveler who never reaches their destination. And they've turned aside to fruitless discussions, idle, useless, empty dialogue and debate. Some of you might have a King James version or a New King James version, and and you have the the way they translate this as vain jangling. I like that. In other words, it's meaningless talk. And it says they, they, they want to be teachers of the law, which was a term for for, for the Jewish rabbis, the teachers of the law, they were the authoritative interpreters of the Old Testament. And so these false teachers, they arrogantly coveted the preaching and teaching role within the church. And yet despite their selfish ambition, they lacked the ability to teach. In fact, Paul actually says they don't even understand what they're talking about. Here they, here they were, these self-centered know-it-alls, they exude this confidence that, that makes others think that, well, what they're saying must be true. But they actually, they didn't have a clue what they were talking about. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul talks about these false teachers. Among them are those who enter into households, captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so here we get to the, the, the heart of the issue, really the motives of false teachers. 
And false teachers are motivated by various impulses. For some, it's just to boost their egos. Others, it's to build their bank account uh, or to fund their lavish lifestyle. Some are seeking recognition or wanting to satisfy their, their sinful lusts. They're not seeking to humbly honor God or help other people. They're, they're merely in it for themselves. They're selfish. They're conceited. And that's the way it's been from the beginning of time. There's, there's, there's been a long line of religious racketeers, if you will, who, who prey on gullible people promising to, uh, to help them while taking their money. You think about Balaam in the Old Testament uh, who was getting paid on the side, right, to, to put a curse uh, on God's people. Or Simon the sorcerer in the New Testament, he saw, he saw the, what he considered magic, the magical powers of the apostles, and he wanted it because he knew, right, that he could make money off of it. You may have heard of the, the uh, man in church history called Tetzel in the 16th century. He was the one that would sell indulgences in the Catholic Church, and he promised people that every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And of course, you've got plenty of folks on TV today, right? You see them. When you flip around the channels, they're sitting in their opulent settings with expensive suits and lots of gold jewelry, and they promise you the same kind of prosperity if you'll just send them your seed money. And they justify their lavish lifestyle, saying it's God's blessing on their lives because of their faith, the great faith they have. And listen, you could be just like me if you had the same kind of faith I had. So one of the best ways to, to discern whether someone is worth listening to and learning from is to examine the focus of their teaching and their ministry. Are they all about themselves or all about money? Is their ministry focused on God's glory or their glory? Do they appear to be indulging themselves at the expense of those to whom they're supposedly ministering? Are they constantly making financial appeals? Do they come across as prideful or humble? So the third way to discern between true and false teachers is to evaluate their focus. Now there's one more way to discern between a true and a false teacher, and that is, and this is most important here, is evaluate their gospel. Evaluate their gospel. Notice verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, here it is, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Paul said previously that these false teachers wanted to be teachers of the law. The problem is they misunderstood and misapplied the law. Paul wanted to make sure before he got into this that, that we knew that the, that doesn't mean the law is bad. He said we know the law is good if it's used lawfully. So 
So Paul went on to clarify how the law and the gospel work together in perfect harmony. And when he talks about the law here, he's referring to God's will for mankind, his standard by which he wants, uh, by he wants us to live our lives. It's the, the, the divine do's and don'ts list, if you will, summarized in the Ten Commandments. So he says, hey, it's a good thing if it's used properly, if it's used the way it was designed. Apparently, these false teachers... However, we're mixing Judaism with Christianity and advocating some kind of works-based righteousness. In other words, that you have to earn your salvation by keeping the law or, or doing good works. And, and this is by far the most common heresy that has plagued the church ever since it began. And it's taken many different forms, but it always comes down to saying that faith in Christ is not enough for salvation. You need to believe in Jesus plus keep the sacraments or perform special rituals or ceremonies or be baptized or to join a particular church or give a certain amount of money or do some other type of good work. And yet the Bible says over and over and over again that no one can earn their salvation by doing anything. Salvation is a free gift by God's grace that we receive through faith alone in Christ alone. God didn't give the law as a way for us to earn our salvation. He gave the law to show us that we couldn't keep it and that none of us is good enough to save ourselves and that we desperately need a Savior. And so the purpose of the law is to expose our sinfulness and help us see how, fall, how far we fall short of God's standard and how much we've offended a holy God so that we would flee in repentance and faith to Christ for salvation. And so this lengthy list here in verses 9 and 10 are just the types of people the law was designed to expose. And then there's a clear connection to the Ten, ten Commandments here. The first three pairs uh, correspond to the first section of the Ten Commandments dealing with offenses toward God. And then Paul went on to list uh, those who violate the second group of commands concerning our neighbor. But his conclusion is that um, is this all-inclusive reference to any behavior that is contrary to sound teaching. In other words, any conduct that is in opposition to the pure, accurate, healthy teaching of God's word or contradicts the gospel in any way. This is, where, this is the key phrase. We're just kind of, there's a lot we could say there in verses 8, 9, and 10, but I really want to zero in on this last phrase. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. That was Paul's measuring stick. Bottom line, for what was true, what was false, was the gospel that God had entrusted to him. And Paul warned the Galatians, you remember this, that even if he or an angel from heaven, he said, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And so he adamantly defended the gospel. At the same time, he affirmed that there was no conflict between the law and the gospel. They serve equally important roles that complement each other. The law shows us that we're wretched sinners who deserve to die and go to hell. And the gospel shows us, that's the bad news, the gospel shows us, right, that Jesus died and rose again to provide forgiveness and eternal life to all those who repent and believe 
in him. So simply stated, the law shows us why we need to be saved, and the gospel shows us how we can be saved. And so all that to say, the the fourth and final way to discern if someone is, is a true or false teacher is to evaluate their understanding of the harmony between the law and the gospel. In other words, the question you need to ask yourself as you listen to someone is, do they use the law properly as a preparation for the gospel message or as a means of salvation? Do they teach that a person can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if they've got the gospel wrong, you want to run as far away as possible because it's another gospel. So that's a lot, I know, to take in here this morning. But let me make it simple. Okay, four basic questions that you could ask whenever you hear someone preach, hear anybody on the radio, watch anybody on the internet, any book you pick up, a new song that comes out, the counseling you're receiving. Ask yourself these questions. Is their teaching based on the word of God? Is it consistent with what the Bible says? That's the first question. Is their teaching based on the word of God? Is it consistent with what the Bible says? Number two, does their teaching produce growth in godliness? Does their teaching produce growth in godliness? It is, it, is it unifying and edifying to the body of Christ? Thirdly, do they humbly seek to honor God and help others? Do they humbly seek to honor God and help others? Is it free of charge and free from financial appeal? And then lastly, do they explain the gospel message clearly and correctly? Is it works-based or God-glorifying grace? Interesting little obscure couple of verses in Job 34. Job 34, verse 3. Job says, For as the ear tests words, excuse me, for the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose for ourselves what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. He's talking about discernment there. And uh, he's using the example of someone that has a discerning palate. Perhaps a wine-tasting connoisseur who's able to discern between not just good and bad wines, even between good and better wines. And not even that, but between better and best wines. Why? Because they've trained themselves. They, they know. They study and in the, in the same way, we need to be uh, a, maybe a, a sermon-tasting connoisseur or a, or a book-reading connoisseur where we know, we can tell the difference between a good book and a bad book, a, a good sermon and a bad sermon. And not just that, the difference between a good book and a better book. Don't have time to read all the books out there in our lifetime, so you got to not just choose the better books, you got to choose the best books, Right? 
and listen to the best preachers. And I'm talking about those that are most faithful, right, to the Word of God. I want to encourage you to learn and train your ears to test the words that you hear and to be as conscientious about what you're letting into your mind as you do what goes into your mouth. And a lot of us, right, especially this time of year, the new year, we've got resolutions and we're being really careful about what we're eating and want to be healthy. And sometimes we are more consumed with that than we are what we're listening to and what we're taking in spiritually. And so this is a good reminder, Job 34, verses 3 and 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. This is such an important subject, and I pray that this has been helpful for all of us just to be reminded of, of, the, of the need, the, the, the necessity to, to be discerning, and to be discerning listener in particular, discerning reader. And uh, Lord, we confess that we um, are like the, the Hebrews who the writer confronted about being dull of hearing. And we need to, we, we should be eating meat, but we're still eating uh, milk, drinking milk. And so we need to train our senses and to be discerning. So help us to be a discerning uh, church, a discerning group of believers. And, and not so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, we're so discerning, but Lord, so that we can make sure that we hold high the truth of your word and never compromise it uh, and that we can see error and he, when we hear it, um, and Lord, we can reject it, and we can guard ourselves against it so that we can continue to grow strong and healthy and, and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.